Do people still watch this TV show? It's always sunny in Philadelphia. There's the bit where Charlie's been in the basement bashing rats to death with a stick. He comes back upstairs and he's in a very philosophical moment saying, there's been whole generations of rats that have died at my hand. How different are their lives from ours? We so easily are animals and ultimately in some ways the rats win. In some ways the rats are better off than we are. Grau said it could be seen only in the light of war. The war itself had been for his entire generation what Grau called a cosmic vampire that had come drinking the blood of millions. And I shall walk as men walk. I shall be the master of a city. And for my mangled years, the city shall pay me with the pleasures of a Nero and the powers of a Caesar. This is then wrapped up with the concept of the waxwork, imagining the twisted souls to The Pointless Century, where we discuss films, literature, and culture in an attempt to understand what modernism was, what the 20th century meant, and whether they even mattered. Today, we'll be talking about the monstrous 20s is really where we get the beginning of a lot of our film genres. We've talked about the beginning of the Hollywood combat movie with the big parade. And tonight we'll be looking at some of the Weimar cinema or German expressionist film, depending on people's preferred terminology, with Murnau's Nosferatu of 1922 and Paul Lenny's Waxworks of 1924. We'll be also looking at the American movie, The Penalty, starring Lon Chaney, who did all his own makeup, did all the sort of weird body effects that you see in all Mm -hmm. his movies. But I want to start with something from a relatively recent monograph by Scott Poole called Wasteland. And he writes, both the dead body and the waxwork made it difficult to imagine the possibility of an eternal soul. Waxworks and the unsettling questions they raised seemed to incorporate all the eerie elements of the war's transformation of the human body into an icon of death and mutilation. They are inanimate bodies, shells with no ghost, blank except for the nightmares that the audience imposes on them. The waxworks guide audiences into the darkest of uncanny valleys, the dead eyes of the figures mirroring nothing. They are puppets that call our personhood into question in exactly the same way the corpse calls into question what we have convinced ourselves of concerning the possibilities of the afterlife. German horror films dealt with this concept again and again with Caligari's Cesare being only the most well-known corpse puppet, standing in for the mounds of lifeless created by Shell and Maxim Gun. But the horror of this idea a horror that destroyed optimistic hopes for a human soul animating the fleshy pulp of the body became the defining feature of post-war horror films. We see it in Nosferatu's ability to empty both Ellen and Nock, 
and Hutter himself of their allegedly natural desires and fill their empty husks with desire for him. Indeed, the vampire glides through the world nearly incorporeal, fading to ethereal nothingness in the sunlight, as would be expected of one that comes from the land of phantoms. Ellen, in contrast, stays behind as a lifeless puppet, a figure of terror as well as grief. So in this period, as I said, we get the beginning of a lot of our film genres Nosferatu is really the first identifiable vampire movie that looks like a vampire movie as we would expect it to. There are others in the same period. We get a lot of these early sort of sleepwalking death doll type movies, Mm -hmm. things like Golem or Caligari, as mentioned. Especially in this German cinema, we get a lot of these tricksters and magicians, figures who are pulling the strings, so to speak and causing evil to happen. And in a certain way, we get the first supervillains, right? Probably the first supervillain that usually is brought to people's attention in this period is the character of Fantomas from French pulp fiction. Probably. That's actually interesting, like the roots of pulp fiction. I did a little yeah. research on that. Yeah, and a lot of that just has to do with media that are available the price of paper who can read and stuff like that you really get pulp fiction in a period during which most people even lower class people can read so you have books for them right and in the u.s that starts with genres like the western but already by the turn of the century you have science fiction and crime fiction with this character of Fantomas in French crime fiction, we get that sort of supervillain who's something out of a gothic novel, but is transitioning more towards something like we think of as like a serial killer type figure, sort of a sociopath, but also somebody who's a genius, right? We see that kind of figure in Lon Chaney's Blizzard in The Penalty. You can almost draw a straight line from Lon Chaney's Blizzard to someone like Jack Nicholson's Joker at the end of the century, where he is very identifiable as a mob boss crime lord, but with a few screws loose and physical deformities. Then we have the sort of supernatural supervillains like the Nosferatu, like the vampire of Count Orlok in Murnau's film which is more or less an unauthorized adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula. And Stoker's widow did ultimately sue because she had tried to stop him from making this movie. And Murnau's solution was he just changed all the characters' names. Ultimately, this is getting back around to the idea that Poole's overall argument is that the genre of horror emerges in the 20s as more or less a reaction to the First World War. It's not coming out of nowhere. It's not like it just happens that people get obsessed with all of this morbid stuff, but it's actually very specifically a way of processing that trauma. In some cases, the directors are indeed war veterans. You see it especially in the German films, because almost everybody who was that age ended up getting cycled through that war. And even in the cases where, you know, that's not literally the case, you have a sort of societal trauma. It takes a little bit longer to get to America because America is in the war in a briefer sense. But once you have European immigrants coming over to Hollywood and making films there, by then these horror tropes get exported to the Hollywood culture. I kind of noticed with Blizzard 
in the penalty. First off, I just want to acknowledge Lon Chaney. Kudos to him for like kneeling in those freaking buckets. Like, oh my gosh, can't even imagine. And then he tied his legs to his back. And apparently the doctors told him not to do this. And he was like, yeah, yeah. So that was amazing. And I kind of noticed that Blizzard, when he like had his music pets, he acted as their superior, but not in the male-female way. He acted as their superior to some degree as he's the boss and she's one of his servants, but not in like a misogynistic way as much. Did y'all notice that a little bit? Where he treated the women more nicely as compared to what you might originally conceive for the time period? He wasn't terrible, but... I just think he acted like nicer than I would have expected for like a mafia boss. Well, he's sort of terrible to everybody, to be fair. I mean, you have that yeah. scene early on in the hat factory yeah, where he grabs the one woman by the hair and he's screaming yeah. at her. You have more or less his introduction is through a hit that he puts out on one of his former kept women who decides to leave. He does kill a woman, so there's that. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't, you don't perhaps put together the pieces until he explains it later on. He's like, oh, so-and-so who wandered from our fold. And then there's this long pause and he's like, she's dead now. Of course, he doesn't whisper because it's silent. So he does it all with his face. Yeah. And he just has an unbelievable range of expressions oh, yeah. on his face. These movies, all of these movies are clearly made to be watched on the big screen. You could say that of every movie, but I think that it's always more obvious the further back you get. For one thing, the film stock gets worse, so it's literally harder to see things on smaller screens. Also, VHS technically comes around in the late 70s, though realistically people aren't using it until the 80s and 90s. You have television rebroadcasts, honestly probably as early as the 50s, though it's hard to tell sometimes. I mean, we were joking about what, how, you know, how are we going to watch these on, on your phone or on your laptop or whatever. And I, quite honestly, I watched all three of these initially on my phone, not necessarily the whole way through, but just as a way to get through the basics and the plot line while I was chasing kids around the house. And I committed to the plan of watching Nosferatu on the big screen because I do have a projector. I do prefer whenever I can to watch things on the wall screen. But when you watch things on the big screen, you realize how much you're missing, even on a high-definition set. And certainly for most students who are watching movies on laptops, there's a lot that goes missing. And it's especially, I think, true in a movie like The Penalty, where so much of the dramatic weight is carried just by these expressions that Lon Chaney is doing on his face. Especially like R in the film Warm Bodies. It's like this romantic Romeo and Juliet dystopian kind of thing. But since the zombie dude couldn't literally talk, he had to portray it all with his eyes. It's the dude that plays the new beast in X-Men. Okay, yeah. I, I imagine you see this in superhero movies. We talked a little about this when we were thinking about Christian Bale versus Michael Keaton as Batman. And I think that all versions of Batman are kind of stiff. If anything, you could say that the Adam West Batman is the one that disproves this because Adam West is willing to go out on a limb and be a little bit goofier and a little bit more expressive. But both Michael Keaton and Kristen Bale in those Batman roles are very, very stiff. And you're basically acting with your eyes and your mouth. Very often you see in horror movies, even in trashy horror movies, 
the best actor will be like a dude in a suit or something. You know what I mean? Like when you have these villains with a very limited range, where as you say, Rachel, they might just be acting with their eyes or just with their body posture, you'll see that those are the actors who, like you may not even recognize them under all their makeup, but they've done like Shakespearean productions and stuff like that sometimes because it's it's like acting on a different level. I suppose this also, yeah, translates to superhero movies in some cases. So Anna, we talked about Blizzard a little bit already. Like, how, how are we supposed to take this character of Blizzard, this plot line for this movie? What are your thoughts? To me, watching it as a whole was difficult. I'm going to admit that. I still am not used to watching silent films. I think it's really notable how much the soundtrack affects yeah. the way that the film comes across. Because as I had mentioned when we were talking about it, I saw it with two different soundtracks. And one soundtrack was just the solo piano soundtrack. And the other was what I'm describing as a synth orchestral soundtrack. And when I watched it the second time with that synth orchestral soundtrack, I was like riveted. It was the kind of thing that like it kept the tension moving for me in yeah. a way that the piano soundtrack didn't. I think I watched the one with the piano soundtrack and it was like silent for a lot of parts. That's interesting that you say that because I hated the orchestral soundtrack. I thought it was so distracting. I had to turn it off. The version with the tints? Yeah. I tried to look into the release history of this and I didn't get a clear answer. I think that that might be like the 2004 release. We don't always have tons of information on the original soundtracks. Sometimes we have the sheet music. Sometimes we have an audio recording, but sometimes we don't have either. You know what I'm talking about with that soundtrack that started with, it periodically returned to this sort of percussive driving theme. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I had suspected that was the Kino Video release. And I'm looking here, I think that that's the Kino Video 2004 yeah. restored yeah, version. It just felt to me like I was at a wedding and I couldn't concentrate because my brain is just whack. So did it sound like <laughs> wedding music to you or was it just Yeah, it did. It really did. It didn't make any sense to me, but somehow I didn't make that connection, but who knows. It was weird for a horror film. Yeah. It was like the music wasn't matching up. And I think I watched the piano version. I see what you're trying to do, but it's not working for me. Like that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I agree, obviously. So Anna, the soundtrack didn't work for you. No, it didn't. The whole no. thing of watching silent films is still weird. It's weird, but I mean, I'll get used to it and I don't hate it. So it'll grow on me. I was going to say about Blizzard, like you were talking about, I think his acting is great. I'd have to agree with you there, but the way that they structure his character and the dialogue seems a little weak to me. And his Did you say that the dialogue seemed weak? Yeah. Are you aware that this is a silent film? I know that. <laughs> I know, but, but, <laughs> well, so here's, here's one thing that I think helps with silent films, and this might be obvious, but... The in-between cuts. Yeah, you can't assume that the intertitles are all the dialogue sometimes you'll see the actors say the words that are in the intertitles but sometimes you'll also see them saying words that aren't in the intertitles 
And I think part of the imaginative exercise of watching a silent film and what I think was assumed originally when people did watch these was that you in your head are supposed to fill in the rest of the dialogue and then the intertitles are there to sort of guide you along in case you missed it. Sure. Yeah. Kind of a weird thing. And in a certain sense, you could say it's more participatory. I don't know. But yeah, generally the dialogue tends to not be well written in the strict sense, but that's because it's an entirely different thing. Sure. And obviously that's me just still getting used to it then, you know. Well, I don't think that it's an illegitimate critique, but yeah, it is part of getting used to it. What's with the devil, the devil bust? Like, I loved it, yeah. I kind of get it, but I don't totally get it. Like, why would you want your followers to think you're the epitome of evil? Don't you want them to love you and follow you to do your bidding? I get that you want them to respect you and fear you, but like... You don't want to be the embodiment of evil. Which one is more powerful, fear or love? Yeah, as Anna's sort of alluding, I guess, to Machiavelli there, right? Who said that, well, sure, it'd be nice to be both feared and loved, but if you have to pick one, being feared is better. But Blizzard clearly identifies with Satan. Yeah. Like on a personal level, right? Mm -hmm. He's asked, why do you live this life, this underworld life? And he says... When Satan was cast out of heaven, he found his power in hell where mm-hmm. he could rule. I love that quote. Yeah. So there is this satanic aspect of this that, if we want to be generous, reaches back to, say, something like Paradise Lost. Better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven, I believe is the Milton quote. So he himself identifies with Satan he likes that idea. And this is all wrapped up in his disability. Yeah. I love that scene where he's playing the piano as one of the women pushes on the pedals for him. Mm-hmm. And he sings his vengeance song. And it's something to the effect of, And I shall walk as men walk. I shall be the master of a city. And for my mangled years, the city shall pay me with the pleasures of a Nero and the powers of a Caesar. The directors of the film were so scared that people thought Lon was actually amputated that in the deleted part at the end that they had like him doing like a side thing out of character walking. Yeah, I think he's walking up or down a flight of stairs just to show that he is um, indeed a whole man. But I also forgot which clip when he was directing the robbery, I think you can see him standing up and directing everybody. Yes, he imagines himself with legs directing the all-out looting of the city of San Francisco. And so there is a scene in the movie where he is standing. So there's a couple of things going on. I mean, first off, there has to be a reading of this film in terms of ability and disability. Secondly, we might ask what that has to do with the war and with people's anxieties about that. Anxieties to the point that the director and producers are wanting to point out to people like, oh, no, he's not actually an amputee. Mm. And then what does that have to do with the city? The war has cut into people's livelihoods and they can't fully live as they had lived before. Sure. I mean, the the war has also, I mean, literally sent home amputees plenty of them for sure you know there's a major question in all countries who are involved in the war in 1920 when this comes out of what will happen with all these men who have been mangled by the war in all variety of ways including for sure double amputees 
sort of like the embodiment of the vengeance that these men want. Not necessarily vengeance, but... I think that you've got something there. If you take that to its like logical extreme, where eventually you get to a movie like Rambo, where the idea is that the war has damaged the soldier to such an extent that he's actually now a danger to society. In Rambo, that character is damaged psychologically rather than physically. But it's the same idea that after going through what he's gone through and being a casualty of war in the way that he is, he can never fit in with society. And even if he wants to try and be a good person, he will always be treated by the powers that be as a dangerous other and therefore will act out in that way. And I think that's not unlike what you'd see with physical disability in the 20s. I mean, even today, we still are grappling with, you know, how to allow people with disabilities to be a part of our society in a way that allows them to equally participate. But obviously, we do a better job of it than we would have in the 20s, uh, when there's definitely still an aspect of this where he's perceived as a freak and his perceived freakishness is automatically wrapped up with the perception that not only is there something physically wrong with him, but there might be something mentally or morally wrong with him as well, that they go together. That's very clear throughout the whole film and it's not solved until the end. Even with intellectual disabilities, I have a cousin with very severe autism and like even as we're like out as an extended family we've still had people like do horrible things like throw food at him in a public cafeteria because they're scared of what they don't know and they don't know how to deal with it yeah in some ways it's even harder with intellectual disabilities because it's something that does have to do with the brain and we have the way that western culture has philosophically set up a divide between the brain and body it's trickier for people to be like Oh, yes, well, that's a disability like any other disability, right? Because the brain is an organ in the the body, right? It leads to people either on the one hand saying, if you can't see it, it's not real. Or on the other hand, perhaps saying, whether people say it outright or not, I think the bigoted perception would be that a damaged brain is a damaged soul, if you will. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying it does make sense. I'm just saying that that's how people's prejudices tend to work with the mind-body divide. And then you ascribe other attributes wrongly to that person. Same with mental health. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we have a whole discourse about this specifically as pertained to the autism spectrum in terms of the way that autism is said to change the way that empathy functions. For me to even say that out loud kind of illustrates our limited vocabulary on something like this. Because to say that someone has a lesser capacity for empathy is automatically already saying that there's something wrong with them in their soul, right? There's something wrong with them morally. And yet I think that it is actually a way for doctors who deal with patients on the autism spectrum to describe a different way of perceiving the world. It isn't meant to be a moral condemnation, of course. It's meant to describe a different way that the brain operates. I'm using it as an example here to show how those kinds of biases built into the language, built into our perception of things, then can lead to prejudices against people with all variety of disabilities. In the 20s, it's you know even more confounded than that. It's not unlike, for instance, what we have with shell shock, where shell shock is, again, then rather than being described as a mental problem or a physical problem with an organ called the brain, right, is described as a deficiency of will or a deficiency of morals. So you are not courageous enough. You are not 
firm enough. You are not strong enough. You do not have sufficient stamina mentally. So those kinds of disabilities are the things that medical science is just beginning to try and explain. And at the same time, it's also in a period where a lot of doctors and biologists are still fully wrapped around the axle of shit like measuring people's skulls, putting people in different racial categories and then claiming that that has some kind of link to mental or again, moral capacities. So that link between the physical, the mental, the moral, the intellectual is blurred in a way that is even in a period that looks in many ways very modern, is still very firmly conflating the idea of you look ugly with you must be evil. And then, of course, we get to just define ugly by whatever a dude with two arms and two legs and a white face says is. Yep. Ha! Good one. And money, too. He needs to have money. I want to go back to that... Quote, and I shall walk as men walk. I shall be the master of a city. And for my mangled years, the city shall pay me. The city shall pay me. Like, I'm confused as, like, method of pay. It's a vendetta. Yeah. But it's not a vendetta against one man. You'd think it'd be a vendetta on the surgeon, but it's not. Yeah. yeah like, why wouldn't it just be on the surgeon? Why the city? The city didn't decide to wrongfully amputate him. Well. But it's also uh, the city that treats him like shit. So, yeah, yeah. I see a direct connection to the war there. Okay. She has a vendetta against the whole city. This is in what, 1920? You know, the war is in very recent memory. It's 1920. The penalties in 1920, and it's really ambiguous to me whether it's actually supposed to be set in 1920 or whether it's supposed to be set earlier than that. You could arguably be set pre war or perhaps even pre the San Francisco earthquake, and I'm not quite knowledgeable enough about costume design to know that. But my guess just from looking at it is those are 1920 suits that the men are wearing. I could be wrong on that. I'm not an expert in fashion. But anyway, as you said, Anna, it's 1920. The war is really prominent in people's minds, at least the viewers for sure. Right. It's really prominent in the people's minds. Even if it is supposed to be set in a different time, I see the sort of misanthropic attitude about the war maybe in these writers' minds trickling into this character. Yeah. I hear in that the city, I hear the kinds of rants that we get from characters like the Joker or Bane in the fascist Batman movies. I hear the way that they talk about Gotham as being so corrupt. Yeah. where the, those characters have a vendetta, not even necessarily specifically with Batman, so much as with the whole city of Gotham. And Gotham, of course, is a stand-in for New York City, but really it represents American civilization as a whole. Yeah. And so similarly, I think that Blizzard ranting against the city in the penalty is ranting against civilization, society as a whole that has shunned him because of what he looks like. But also, I connect it back to actually the very first intertitle of the film, which you may recall is A Victim of City Traffic. The whole reason that Blizzard gets his legs amputated when he's a child, yes, of course, is because the doctor mistakenly thinks it needs to happen when apparently it doesn't have to. This is never fully explained, but I don't really care. Yeah. 
good enough. You know, the point is that a young doctor thought that he needed to amputate fast. And then the older doctor is like, no, you didn't. Let's cover this up. <laughs> That's fucked up enough that we get the idea. Yeah. <laughs> and the boy fading in out of the ether hears them arguing over it. Yeah, I think that that would, <laughs> that would screw with your head a little, even if you didn't take a contusion to the skull, you'd still, you know, mess with you a bit. But in the first place, he's on that operating table because he gets hit by presumably a trolley or a cable car or something like that that's mashed up his legs to begin with. So the blizzard is really a victim of modern civilization, a victim of the city in this very literal way too, that I think is worth considering, that his vendetta is with the sort of machinery of the world as it exists. And in a certain way, we can say that also means that it's a vendetta against capitalism as it's emerged in this period. And this isn't pushed super hard, but this is a film that comes out during the first Red Scare. And it's offhandedly noted that the Blizzard's foot soldiers are Reds, which is to say communists, socialists, anarchists, labor union people who... Of course, because this film is made by capitalist Hollywood directors, they're presumed to just be dumbass stooges who listen to this you know, powerful figure who tells them what to do, right? And there's a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment that's worked in there too, because these are people who are outsiders from the city. Never mind the fact that they've been living in the fucking city slums, you know, in some cases their whole lives, maybe just for the past few years because they came off the boat relatively soon. But one way or another, the point is they are, of course, of the city and yet they're defined by the world that the film is trying to lend support to. They're defined as being outsiders. They're outside agitators. <laughs> they're the Reds. Seriously. Now, strictly speaking, of course, as any good Prohibition-era gangster, the Blizzard is also like a total capitalist. And, you know, a lot of this is, you know, he's making money off the, well, we don't really get to see it, but we just presume the speakeasies, the brothels, the numbers rackets, et cetera, et cetera. Just normal right. gangster shit, you know? It's your bread and butter. Normal so. gangster shit. Yeah. But if he does has, have a vendetta, it's a vendetta with the city. It's a vendetta with civilization. And that's the kind of stuff that makes him interesting as a character. He could yeah. be any old gangster. But what makes him a supervillain is that he is a monster created by industrial civilization that has then vowed to take revenge on the civilization as a whole. And so therefore, his master plan involves instigating riots and looting the city. Very cool and very normal. So as I said, there is a large portion of this movie, The Penalty, that's like, enacting the dominant culture's fears of an insurrection of immigrant workers, of communist revolutionaries. I mean, more or less, we're told that, you know, our supervillain is going to lead an Antifa army in <laughs> looting Center City, San Francisco. It's actually amazing how dead on the plan that the Blizzard cooks up fits with what we've heard in like the most fever dream right wing like oh God. facebook can swamps. we just wake up from this coma no, no it's not a fever not dream fire. i feel like it's a coma well we'll get to that when we get to the weimar <laughs> period in germany because we're right now living in our weimar period <laughs> 
But the plan, if you if you recall, is actually not merely to have all these reds and immigrant baddies riot, but actually for the riot to draw the police force out into the suburbs, therefore leaving the center of the city undefended so that it could then be occupied and looted by our genius supervillain criminal. I watched it and I'm like, you're kidding. This is connected to now. I mean, people have literally been cooking up this insane dream that like, oh, what if this happened for a hundred years? One of my favorite moments in this movie in terms of like supervillain badass moments is when Blizzard is talking to his nemesis, Dr. Ferris, played by Charles Clary. And he's in his office and it goes back to the wide shot. And then this trap door drops out from under him. <laughs> he falls into the floor. And I was like, at that moment, Lon Chaney picks up this like, I don't know, dictaphone or sound tube or, or something. I don't know what. And he starts yelling into it. <laughs> it's so funny. It's like, he's really excited. I got you now. I, I always imagine it's like he falls into the dungeon. He's like, fuck you. you know, I got you. <laughs> After all these years. I don't think he's actually yelling at Dr. Ferris. I think he's yelling at his henchmen to be like, grab him, you know. But like we talked about it earlier, part of the intertitles is to lead people on the right track, but you make up the rest. So maybe he is saying that. Yeah, no, I love it. Fuck you. (laughs) I hope you break your legs on the way down, asshole. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and so, yeah, we have this whole convoluted thing where he's going to force Ferris to amputate this other guy's legs. I think it's Barbara's fiance's legs. Yeah. That is, the doctor will amputate his daughter's fiance's legs and then attach them to the blizzard's upper legs. I do want to just take this to its logical extent in terms of the discussion that we've had from the Batman movies and what the Joker means. Blizzard does thematically resemble the Joker in so many ways. And I think especially that like Jack Nicholson Joker, that like appreciation for the arts, for instance, Mm -hmm. that sense of the demonic hero. But we also see in the character of the Blizzard that mainstream culture or that dominant culture imagining its enemy as an inverse of itself in a way that i've talked about it sometimes is maybe like capitalism telling on itself the use of the trapdoor is an interesting instance of that because i think as i watched it the second time it made me recall the stories of late 19th century san francisco about men being shanghaied Being shanghaied in the late 19th century in sort of disreputable Pacific coast towns like San Francisco or, I don't know, Seattle or Vancouver or whatever, would mean being basically abducted. Usually, like, roofied and abducted would probably be the way that we'd talk about it these days. Something would be slipped into the person's drink. So, so the person could be drugged. The person might just be drunk in the first place because you're a shiftless dude in San Francisco, so you're probably really drunk. Or they could be like physically knocked out. 
And there are cases where, you know, nefarious characters would have trapdoors and stuff like that. So the idea would be that you'd find your mark, you'd knock them out by drugs, by violence, or some combination of them, and then you'd transport them perhaps through a trapdoor or perhaps just physically carry them out. And they wouldn't wake up until they were like literally on a boat to Shanghai. And the idea is, well, now that you're here, you're going to be working on this sailing crew. So that's what being Shanghai is. Now, not for nothing, capitalism is always not too far removed from organized crime, right? <laughs> and in the late 19th century, in a place like the West Coast of the U.S., that's going to be even more true. So the idea of Shanghaiing sailors would be the kind of thing that maybe a villain like the Blizzard would actually do. But it also shows a really interesting conflation of the idea of, well, is the Blizzard supposed to be a revolutionary figure? Is he just a capitalist, but like the worst kind of capitalist, you know, the gangster capitalist, the disreputable capitalist? Or is this a matter of the dominant culture trying to imagine what a dangerous revolutionary figure would be, and then like failing to come up with anything more creative than, oh, well, he's probably like the worst kind of a capitalist, because that's all I can imagine. <laughs> it's sort of the modern equivalent would be the right wing claim that well, in the Seattle autonomous zone, they're making the businesses pay bribes. And there's a warlord who's claiming that he's in control of everything there. Neither of these claims are true. But they're the kind of things that are repeated in the fever dream Facebook chat boards of America. The funny thing about it is, of course, okay, well, who demands bribes from you? Well, a capitalist, right, yeah. demands bribes. Who tries to be a warlord? Well, uh, a capitalist or a statist, right? It's like it actually exactly the opposite of your hypostatized anarcho-communist villain. That's to say that the, the right wing can only imagine what it itself is and then like projects outward its enemies as being the opposite. Sometimes that comes from lack of creativity. Sometimes that comes from just like clever rubber glue rhetorical maneuvers, right? Like you see Trump doing that at the highest level. You always... And then Goebbels himself said, you always accuse your enemy of doing the thing that you're doing. That way, when they say it back to you, it sounds like they're just repeating what I said. <laughs> no, you're crooked. I'm crooked. I'm crooked. No, you're crooked. I said you were crooked first. What do we think of the Blizzard as a figure defined by his disability? And how do we read that today? How might our reading of that differ from how people in 1920 would have read him? I think it was more of a bigger deal for people back then, so they would have seen it differently. One thing back then is you, but I think today something that sets you apart doesn't necessarily make it a bad thing for you anymore. People are realizing that you can be many different things. Like some people being queer is like, that's who they are. But me being queer, it's only a portion of my identity. I'm also an activist. I also enjoy humanitarian work, all that other stuff. It doesn't make me, it makes up a part of me. But back then, I feel like if you had one thing that made you different from other people, that was you and you couldn't differ from that. So he <laughs> felt he had to stick to that to some degree. Well, it's subordinated under this dominant concept of masculinity too, right? Like why is the disabled soldier such a problem in this era? Why is the disabled soldier ever a problem? 
yeah, sure, on the personal level, it's because it makes your life more difficult and more painful. But actually, that's very rarely what we see on the cultural level of concern about those things. It's a concern that's filtered through the concept of the loss of masculinity. And that's why they sometimes labeled it as hysteria, and hysteria was known as, quote-unquote, a woman's disease. Back to that root, yeah, hyster, right? Mm-hmm. A disease of the womb. Think of the Blizzard's song, I Shall Walk As Men Walk. Yeah. He is expressing this sense that he is not fully a man because of his lack of legs. And that's basically what the society has told him. Or that he doesn't see himself as a man in any part. Because he said, I will walk as a man. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You could say that he's sort of compensating for it in other ways, at least until we get to the end and then there's a, you know, a, a final reveal. But at least until we get to the end, we might say that his violence, his obsession with power, his domination of women is all ways of overcompensating and making himself feel more masculine to make up for the fact that he has no legs or that he has half legs. That ableism of the film is then filtered through gender and through sort of notions of heterosexual normativity too. You might recall that there's this moment where one of the characters is told by the patriarch, if you will, true women need love, home, and children. He has made you forget that. I was going to rail against that, yeah. It's just for obvious reasons that we all understand or should understand, you know. Something like that just obviously irks me. But we have progressed beyond 1920. Have we? I mean, you never go far enough. There is no end. But there has been some concessions to what a majority of the other wants. Do you remember which character this is said to? Is that said to Barbara or to Rose? I forget. Ultimately, there is a genuine relationship, if you will. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I should put genuine in quotes. <laughs> Between the blizzard and Rose. And, and she sort of turns to his side as a double agent at first. And then she sticks with him after he reforms himself through his death. That she ends up being this kind of savior figure for him. But obviously, the blizzard exerts a sort of psychological control over people. That's pretty clear, specifically over women, but we could say generally over people yeah. that allows him to have his criminal empire. And the idea is that that control that he exerts is drawing them away is not considered by any of the characters as like a problem in and of itself that he is controlling and perhaps exploiting women. It is considered a problem that he is drawing them away from what they should be doing which is marrying a normal, upstanding, in the literal and figurative sense, man, and settling down, getting married, keeping the home, having children. He's making them stray from that. Do you think it could also be slightly psychological to some degree because he is shorter than them? So they feel like they have maybe unknown to them. They feel like they're almost equals to him because he's not a man that's towering over them. He's shorter than them. So it feels equal in some very small sense to them. And that's why they're attracted to him. I think that when we see the way that he relates to them, whether it's like these scenes where he's playing the piano and they're pushing the pedals for him, or whether it's him posing for the statue of Satan 
and Barbara is waxing rhapsodic about, oh, you know so much about art. <laughs> it's all of him like in these very dominant positions in terms of his intellectual or artistic mastery. Anna, do you think that that squares? I don't see him on any egalitarian planes. To me, it was a weird mix of pity and power. Okay, pity and power. Okay. Pity power. I see that. The pity sort yeah. of maybe softens them up a little bit and then power you know, exerting comes in and knocks them out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You want to talk about the ending? It's was the ending of, satisfying? To me, it was just lumped in the category again. Oh, this is just a quick and dirty way to finish it off. I'm sure people can think things over and draw meaning from it, but I didn't, and it didn't work for me. Yeah, he's built up to all of this, and then you're like, oh, here's a swipe of my knife. Oh, there goes your memory. There's just something wrong with his head. Yeah. <laughs> I think the idea that he was the way he was psychologically because of his physical condition as a result of the way that the world treated him is probably more interesting and feels deeper now than it would have 100 years ago. I think that maybe 100 years ago that would have seemed to the viewer less of a judgment passed on the environment and more just a simple old school fairy tale where the monster looks like a monster and then therefore is a monster. I think that to my mind, I feel like this is a significant movie for the period in which it's released because it does seek to refute the notion that we are as we are because that is what we are. That's to say, it refutes the notion that the blizzard was born the blizzard and would always be the blizzard. It refutes all those notions that could then be interpreted through things like genetics, as even it doesn't really exist yet, but through things like phrenology, through things like race science, through things like, well, this person was a criminal. I can see this person's skull and therefore they're a criminal from the moment that they were born, right? It refutes all of that stuff that was actually quite popular in the era and says, no, actually, it's a question of which environmental thing. There's actually like no consideration of nature whatsoever. This is not a debate of nature versus nurture. It actually is a question of which aspects of the environment that this man grew up and lived in have made him the way he is. Yeah. In a period in which it would be very comfortable for people to say, oh, a criminal is a criminal is a criminal. They're born a criminal. This is not even considering that seriously, except for that whole presumption of these weak-willed, shiftless immigrant workers who obviously are going to do this revolt because they do whatever they're told and they're probably just born criminals anyway. So that is actually in there, that like race science criminality thing is in there, but in a very soft way for characters who are mainly off screen. But for this one character that we're looking at very closely, that explanation of nature is put aside entirely and the suggestion is always that he would have been a good and normal person if it weren't for this horrible thing that happened when he was a boy. The question is, is it because he had his legs amputated and the world treated him horribly because of that and he became angry and vengeful because of that, which seems reasonable, more than a little exaggerated? Or is it because like literally he got knocked on the head too hard and it just like scrambled his brains a little? I actually really like the way that the ending works 
considering the styles of films that it's going up against and considering that for a feature length movie, we're still figuring out what's a reasonable plot arc to do. I think it's actually quite clever how we see Dr. Ferris as he's held hostage, agree to do the surgery and looks into the camera as he's talking. And there's some really significant irony there that he's like in a figurative sense, winking to the viewer saying, oh yeah, I'll do the surgery. And you don't understand what it means that he's looking into the camera until afterwards. And when I mentioned that, like, they're still figuring out, like, well, what's a reasonable plot arc? Because, like, that afterwards is actually a literal few seconds afterwards. <laughs> After the cut in which we presume that he's done this surgery, right? So no reasonable use of suspense. They kind of blew it on that one, but whatever. They're probably just trying to get it onto, like, seven reels or whatever. <laughs> you know, the cut... They're like, did you really attach his legs? And he's like, no, I can't do that. That's freaking nuts. I just took the tumor out of his head. <laughs> I should have dealt with that thing 20 years ago. I don't know. Yeah, so it ends up just being that dude needed brain surgery all along. And once he has brain surgery, he's a perfectly reasonable person. He wants to pay back his debt to society. He's going to be a good man. And then, of course, the real criminals assassinate him towards the end but he gets to die a martyr while playing the piano i think right kind of beautiful i'm not denying Uh, how interesting the psychological angle of this film is but it's annoying to me it can be annoying i mean you just kind of have to read it for what it is and take it for what it's worth i'm not saying that it's the greatest movie I'm just saying that like in terms of film history, it's doing something that I think is interesting for its period in a way that's not really super well executed, but I think is worth thinking about a little bit. We also have a number of different prints of this. Some of them don't have that first title card that points out that this is supposed to be about a plague. I saw the one that didn't have that. It's also complicated by the fact that obviously the original title cards were in German. So some prints, you could have the intertitles in English. Or sometimes they just redo the intertitles entirely because maybe they didn't age well or you know maybe they want to use a different font or something like that so you you see all all sorts of different things with a movie like this and i hope you saw a version with the tints because the tints are kind of crucial it gets like golden when it's towards sunset and then blue when it's night except if it's candlelight indoors at night it'll be gold again and then when the sun rises it's gold and then daytime is white light in a movie like this where you have like weird time shifts and so much of the plot takes place during the night because it's about vampire, you know, that's kind of important. But you'll see some where that title card just says Nosferatu and others where that title card will say Nosferatu, the symphony of horror and others where after that they'll have a title card that says a narrative of the great plague of 1838. The point being that it's a little different than what we think of as a typical vampire movie because it is positioned as being about something like a plague. Because the vampire is described as like a bringer of death in the wholesale sense rather than going after individual people. Of course, he does go after individual people, but we also get a sense of mass death. I'm harping on this because this is Scott Poole's 
big thing in Wasteland and his interpretation of this, where he says that this has to be understood in terms of the war and how the people who worked on the production did, in fact, talk about it in terms of it being sort of metaphorically about the war, because it is about that mass death rather than just individual death. So it takes place in 1838. I'm quoting from Poole again here. Grau said it could be seen only in the light of war. The war itself had been for his entire generation what Grau called a cosmic vampire that had come drinking the blood of millions. And then Scott Poole goes into a long-winded thought exercise where you're trying to imagine what it would be like to be a German in 1922. Questions, thoughts, ideas, rants about Nosferatu? What's with the book at the end in the movie? Like, it's extremely convenient, but the people in the village, they didn't explain it, but then that book is conveniently there. Like, it's common knowledge, but then they weren't telling Hutter, but they wouldn't tell him why they wouldn't do stuff. So, like, why the frick would you provide this book but not tell him about it if you're so scared, but you're like, oh, here's a Bible of Nosferatu or whatever. I feel like there's a genre explanation and there's like an in-world explanation. The genre explanation, I'm sure, is obvious to you, which is that in this type of movie, you need to do that. Everybody knows and yet nobody knows. Like your protagonist can't know, but also all of the breadcrumbs must be dropped so that he should know because it's not fun unless we're literally screaming at him about how he's such an idiot while he goes to his doom. I think I'm thinking of this in more of a real world sense. Yeah. To my mind, the in-world explanation is that we, people who we might describe as superstitious or if we're saying that this is taking place in a world where the Nosferatu vampire is actually real, right? That people in that situation don't even want to talk about it because to talk about it is to invite the Nosferatu. To speak of it, it's too risky. And this is true in all sorts of magic and all sorts of occult and superstitious belief that to speak of the evil thing is to risk maybe inviting that. All right. That would be my way of understanding it. And at the same time, this is taking place in a period in which people are, of course, interested in studying things. Yeah. Like I said, this is theoretically in 1838. So we're not only into the Enlightenment, we're in some parts of the world starting to really get into the Industrial Revolution even. Not really in this part of the world, but... And then at the same time, those things are still mixed up with the occult in weird ways. And so we have old knowledge and new knowledge. And I imagine that this book is some of that old knowledge that the new knowledge people might not take seriously. Hutter is what sort of real estate contract guy. He's a numbers man. He deals with property, deals with physical things. He's a white collar worker in a capitalist economy. He deals with what he can see. He deals with what he can make money off of. And these sort of spiritual things, these non-corporeal things, that kind of a person is probably likely to say, oh, that's that's all just silly old bullshit. Yeah. Have either of you read the Bram Stoker novel? No. It's on a long list of books that I want to read. It's definitely you know, a classic for a reason. I don't know if I would say that I liked it, but I'm very glad that I'm familiar enough with it. It's, to me, very much a 19th century novel in that it feels to the modern eye a lot more complicated than it needs to be, but that's just kind of like the fun of it. People joke about it, like, this is a book that has everything. (laughs) 
yeah. and it really does and nosferatu is a super stripped down version of it and it's changed in certain ways of course one thing about nosferatu that's stripped down from the original dracula novel is that nosferatu has the villain of the vampire but there's nobody fighting against it. In the original Dracula novel, you have not only the great vampire hunter slash doctor slash occultist Van Helsing, who is replaced here with the just merely Dr. Professor Bulwer, but you have like a whole crew of weird ass vampire hunters, including a random ass cowboy they brought in from Texas for nobody knows why. So it's like, it's the kind of novel that as you're reading it, you're like, man, this thing's dying to be made into a movie, but like much more like a weird Avengers style movie. <laughs> yeah. Nosferatu. Why is he so freaking ugly? Because like, wasn't the original Dracula supposed to be attractive? This is actually one of the most innovative things about the movie. I mean, if you want to call it innovative, it's one of the things that sets it apart from almost all other vampire movies and certainly all Dracula movies. Wouldn't you want to be highly attractive to lure your prey? The original novel is very, very sexualized in terms of the way that the vampire lures his prey and preys on his victims and... Is that a bat in your pocket or are you just happy to see me? And he has like a whole coven of female vampires that seduce and attack the character who ends up being Hutter in this. The women back in England, because it's England instead of Germany, that he's going after are like the, you know, hottest goth chicks you could imagine. <laughs> and, Got those leather pumps. I do think that like these characters of, I don't know if I'm remembering their names correctly, like Lucy and whatnot are like the beginning of what we would think of as a distinctly recognizable goth style. Like they're described in terms of their pale skin and in terms of their obsession with death and in terms of their thin slender neck. It's like a cartoon about beautiful goth chicks and the you know, suave, manipulative demon that's going to come after them. So yes, yes, the original Dracula is very sexualized in a certain way, but also he's described as very much like an animal or a creature in other ways. So Bram Stoker is sort of splitting the difference, and there's many suggestions that he's a shapeshifter, of course, yeah. turning into a bat. Uh, you get wolves. In this version of Nosferatu, you get rats, but you don't get so much the whole shape-shifting thing. In the version of Dracula that then becomes famous in America, the classic Bela Lugosi Dracula, I mean, I guess it's hard these days to look at Bela Lugosi and think of him as a sex symbol, but definitely he's supposed to be suave. And again, for the era and for what people were willing to put on film, it's definitely supposed to be like, look into my eyes as I seduce you. And, you know, some people have said that the mythology of the vampire as it emerges at the turn of the 20th century and then gets popularized through film in the early to mid 20th century is basically like all a metaphor for fears about the figure of the rapist. I'm not even sure if in the original Dracula, it's a metaphor. Like, I think it's pretty much all right there. Like, yeah, sure, he's sucking your blood, but he wants control of your body. It's very, very strongly sexualized. So it is interesting that Murnau goes in a completely different direction here. 
This is like hunchback, pasty ass, warty bitch. He's like a subhuman creature. Yeah. The hands. I was just going to say this guy be out here looking like Edward Scissorhands. <laughs> he has these pointy ears and this bulbous head. The fangs are not like the side of the mouth, but they're like right in the front. They're like rat-like rodent teeth. The fingers are these claws. I mean, I, it definitely does stretch the concept of whether he's supposed to be taken as human or not. And he's not sexy. <laughs> but we do see, preserved from the original novel material, that he exerts a psychological power over his victims, even in advance of his arrival. That they're thinking of him, that they're waiting for him, that they're aware of him, that in a certain sense they want to be victimized by him. Which again, think about what that says for the culture when people have been saying, like, oh, is this not yeah. a metaphor for rape? What do we think of the special effects? I appreciated the tint just like I appreciated it in The Big Parade. It adds sparkle. There's a lot of things in this movie that to the 21st century viewer look really cheesy or hokey, but to a period viewer would have been like pretty astonishing and freaky and weird. In Nosferatu, a lot of it is camera effects. So things like speeding up the film or technically slowing down the film. So you have your carriage drive at obviously the rate that a carriage drives, but you run the film more slowly. Then when you play it back at the normal rate, the carriage will look like it's going freakishly fast. That's very intentional here with the moment when Hutter first meets Count Orlock in disguise, pretending to be just like a carriage driver. That's supposed to be like an ominous freaky way too fast going carriage but to us watching it it's like oh well he just sped up the film but in its day in 1922 people watching that would perceive that as a special effect that this is a freakishly fast moving carriage to us it looks like oh well you didn't want to waste the time of us having to watch this thing like come up to see it so he just sped it up like no 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 we're supposed to take that as happening in real time that like this carriage moves so fast right and remember it's 1922 and not everybody has a car certainly there are cars but like cars don't go as fast as they go now mostly if people are in an urban area or traveling by mechanized transport is by a trolley if people are in rural areas much more commonly riding on horses and stuff like that so seeing a horse go freakishly fast is a thing in 1922 with the tents too you have to consider where film is coming from i imagine if i watched it in the 20s i'd be like wow they're actually capturing time beyond this sphere of just black and white mm-hmm. that's pretty cool It's weird, too. You get in a lot of these types of gothic and supernatural novels. A large portion of that is the question of, wait, how is time passing? What's going on? How long have I been here? Yeah. That's a little bit clearer in the original Dracula because it's epistolary. So it's all written in the frame of letters, diary entries, stuff like that. And so as people write their reports, they're often reflecting on whether they've accounted the events correctly, whether there's something they left out, how long they've been somewhere. I'm writing you this letter and it's been such and such and so long. You know what I mean? In the course of a feature length movie, trying to express that same thing is a little bit trickier. So he meets Orlok and Orlok is saying, well, we're going to do all our business at night. I sleep during the day. And then there's this whole thing with staying up at all hours and then Hutter falls asleep and it's suggested that Orlok is sucking his blood. 
in the novel, those kinds of situations are related in a way that leaves them more ambiguous and that allows them to develop over time where it's like he realizes eventually that something is not right. Wait a minute, am I being held here against my will? You know, I remember being awake last night and did I see the sunrise? When was the last time I saw the sunrise? Wait a minute, when was the last time I saw sunlight at all? You know, and you get this sense of like, oh my goodness, here's somebody who's like actually being psychologically manipulated or spiritually manipulated as well. Yeah. In a movie where this is just the first section or the second section of the movie, everything has to be so much more sped up. And so then it's like, well, why don't you just run? Well, okay, that's kind of cool in a movie. As I said, you want to have that experience of like yelling at the screen, being like, you dope, get out of there. But what you're also supposed to get is that he is being held captive in a sort of spiritual or psychological sense. And also that he's like become weak, drained of blood. And then also you're supposed to, on top of that, get this sense of, things taking place at a different time of day than they normally would. And that's where the tints come in, where you need to show the sunsets, you need to show the sunrises, you need to show nightlight or candlelight. And you can't really do any of that because even if you did do it in color film, which theoretically you could, but nobody would in 22 because nobody had that much money to do it. Certainly not in Germany, nobody could do that, right? But even if you did, you wouldn't have that kind of precision in the print to be able to bring out those kinds of colors, those kinds of varied nuances of tone and shade like we might expect from just normal video or film. And so, yeah, you have to do a lot more with tints. We have a lot of special effects that are double exposures. We talked about that a little bit in the big parade where that's just actually trying to populate the battlefield. Here it's to give a sort of ethereal quality, the ability of things to appear and disappear. And we also have some stop motion stuff where the vampire Orlock is moving the coffins full of dirt. He gets in the coffin and then the lid of the coffin comes up over top. For people like us who we've seen this in animation so many times that it's like kind of a silly thing. But again, you have to remember a world where they're still learning how to make a movie and this is perceived as a special effect. This is perceived as he's through telekinesis, if you will, moving the lid of the coffin. But then going back to England, like what's up with that minion dude? Yeah, so of course in the original it would be England, but in this case it's Germany. Oh, it's still a trip via sea. So we have to presume that it's like down from the Black Sea through the Bosphorus and Dardanelles out the Mediterranean and up to the Baltic, ultimately. I don't know what, what part of Germany is supposed to be taking place in, but I suppose maybe I'd imagine East Prussia or something like that. You're talking about Nock? Yeah. So Nock is replacing the character of Renfield, if I'm remembering correctly, from the original Dracula at this point in the plot. And Renfield is sort of held for observation as a sort of madman of sorts. And it's honestly one of the more fascinating parts of Dracula. And I'm not a huge Bram Stoker fan, but I do think that the character of Renfield in Bram Stoker's Dracula is really interesting. In the original novel, he's in his cell and he does this thing as he's being observed by the doctors. I don't even think they call themselves psychiatrists in this era, but the doctors are trying to figure out what's wrong with this dude. They observe him and he first starts by capturing a number of flies and then he uses the flies as bait to capture a number of spiders who eat the flies. And then he uses the spiders as bait 
these are his pets, he calls them, right? Ultimately, he gets up to like mice. The idea is that he's like working his way up the food chain through these animals that he captures in his cell. And it's not because he's just like bored or whatever. It's because he has this obsession with blood as this essential elixir of life, so to speak, is this obsession with predation that then ultimately goes up to him having this sense of Dracula as his master that he's waiting for. But how did he get to Germany? Orlok didn't come to Germany. So like, Orlok ultimately comes to Germany, yes, on the ghost ship. But Nock wasn't... Nock was there all along. Nock is the one who sends Hutter to Transylvania. How is Nock related deal. to Orlok? Did he originally live by Orlok and then move to Germany to lure more people? or like? I suppose that that's a reasonable reading of it. I don't think that that's necessarily the case, but we could read it that way. I mean, obviously he knows Orlok in some way. Orlok's contacted him to do this real estate deal, right? Well, I would think that he's a partial vampire too, because just the way that he looks. Yeah. So I would have thought that he'd come in contact with Orlok. I think that you can read him that way as being a sort of subordinate vampire. Uh, I don't know all the vampire lore terminology and whatnot. And I'm not sure that Murna did either. It hadn't been established so well by then. You know, he's sort of making it up as he goes along. But you're right that he looks like a freak. And specifically, he looks like an old man. You might also say that both Nock and Orlok look like some of those anti-Semitic caricatures that you'll see 10 years later as the Nazis come to power. I don't think that that can be by accident, which is not necessarily to say that Myrna is trying to make an anti-Semitic point, but it is to say that there is certainly in this era and in this film and in the Weimar culture, an obvious concern about the question of what makes a human and the question of whether there are some hiding amongst us who are somehow less human, somehow less German. And then maybe these people are sucking our blood. Maybe these people are sapping our strength. I'm not saying that Myrna is trying to make that point, but I see how it could be certainly read that way. It's just very confusing to me, that whole character, why he's there. Obviously, he's there to get Orlok back, but how did he get there in the first place? I'm probably digging too much into this, especially since he's not as focused on in the film, but he just very much intrigues me. I mean, he's more important in the novel, but even then, I think that, to my mind, his importance is mainly in making this a very creepy situation where there is that suspense and that expectation of horror as we wait for the vampire to arrive. In the filmic sense of the plot structure, I think that we can also chalk it up to still figuring out what a typical movie plot's going to look like. That your 21st century expectation is for the loose ends to all tie up, and I'm not sure that anybody necessarily thinks that's going to happen in 1922. Yeah. They're going to come to the movie, and they're going to get scared, and they're going to be like, man, nothing scared me like that before. This is something different, you know? It's certainly freaky, right? Yeah. There you go. Scores the point. (laughs) And just in the same way that we have to imagine so much in terms of like what characters might be saying, what characters might be thinking. We also, I think in a lot of these types of movies have to imagine all kinds of perhaps backstories and subplots that are not revealed that to our 21st century mind, we expect to be revealed a little bit better. These movies are far less psychological than we might expect them to be. 
the penalty is kind of the exception there, right? Where we do get a pretty good window into the Blizzard's psychology. But for the most part, movies in this era are not really doing that. It's funny when you say that it's not psychological because the way that that films are actually set up, you're supposed to film the blanks when in contrast to today, you show up in a movie theater and nine times out of 10, we expect everything to be laid out for us. And sometimes we get frustrated if we have to do the work, when in reality, maybe we would have a richer experience if we were more engaged with the film of today in comparison to the 20s. Yeah, and I don't know if they were more engaged or not then. I think that some viewers were and some viewers weren't. Again, remember that this is also a period in which the vast majority of films that were made were lost. So the ones that we see are probably the best. They were the ones that people felt were worth saving and the ones that enough copies of them were produced to mean that when umpteen jillion movie houses burned down, there were a couple still left over. Because again, they were made on celluloid, which is, I guess, like one of the most flammable things you can make things out of. But yeah, it's hard to say for sure. It is fair enough to say that some people went to these movies and it was like the equivalent of turning on the TV in the background while you eat food. And other people came to these movies and they were very serious about it. Right. And that's not fully my point. My point is that maybe these films appear to be simple in terms of how they're constructed in comparison to today's films, but maybe they're actually more complex. I mean, and there are some people who would say that today's films are actually quite simple, but they look like they're complex. They're very complex on a surface level, but deep down inside, there's actually nothing there. I would put the Dark Knight movies in that category. You have not seen The Dark Knight Rises yet, but The Dark Knight Rises, I think, does that really astoundingly. And I hate to shit on Christopher Nolan, but I think that, honestly, this is like Christopher Nolan's thing, that he makes very complex surface level edifices that if you try and cut down a few layers to figure out what's going on, it's like there's nothing there. And it's funny because it does remind me of some of the stuff that Scott Poole's talking about in his book, Wasteland, where he says that the real fear of this period is that there is no soul. The real fear of this period is you see bodies, 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 and then you see a wax mannequin that looks like a human being, and you ask yourself, well, that creepy thing looks like it's looking at me, and you say to yourself, no, no, it's not looking at me, that wax thing doesn't have a soul. Behind the eyes, it's just nothing. But then you remember, well, I did fight in that war for four years and I saw a lot of fucking corpses that inside there was fucking nothing. And I am still walking around this earth and I feel like inside of me is fucking nothing. Then you start thinking to yourself, well, shit, are we just a bunch of fucking animals here? Or, yeah. Yeah, are we just nothing inside? And that's the dirty, crass way of putting Scott Poole's point which is that if we see these characters and it's like, okay, generic wife, okay, generic dude trying to do a real estate deal, okay, that guy's kind of weird. You, like you are your role in society in a certain sense. And then we only see a few things you say and we see the things you do. And then we have to project the rest. We have to imagine what kind of person they are. We have to imagine the words that they're saying. We don't even hear them. We don't even see the colors. We don't even like know, like, do you like to wear red shirts or do you like to wear blue shirts, right? We imagine that. Wait a minute, they're just actors in a movie. I'm imagining all this shit. Then you stop and you say, well, is that different from life? Like, are we all actors in a movie? 
is it that actually they're not very well characterized or is it that like in reality people don't really have much in the way of personality because they don't have souls in the first place that was just a trick we made up for ourselves to feel better and now we're staring into the void again it's what i do best am i projecting myself onto the chaos of the wax exactly Do people still watch this TV show? It's always sunny in Philadelphia. Some I people love it. once in a while. Okay. There's the bit. It's actually one of my favorite episodes, Charlie's birthday. The bit where Charlie's been in the basement bashing rats to death with a stick. Rats. He comes back upstairs and he's in a very philosophical moment saying to the rest of the gang, you know, there's been whole generations of rats that have died at my hand. When you stop to think about it, you know, how different are their lives from ours? And the other characters are like, very, very different. Their lives are very different than ours, Charlie. Like, please don't kill any of us. <laughs> and what Charlie is saying there, and it's absolutely on point because you think about all those other episodes. So many of those episodes have Charlie and Frank riffing on Rambo is this idea of the psychologically damaged combat veteran return to society and then not being able to fit in and insisting on seeing the whole world as a war in which nothing matters anymore. Like that's a running joke in a number of those episodes. That sort of epiphany that Charlie has about the rats and him questioning whether the life of a rat is actually worth any less than the life of a human being is actually very much not like the same as, but similar to the kinds of epiphanies that combat veterans of the first world war would have come back to the society with, with the notion that like actually human life is not worth very much. And I have seen rats eating the dead bodies of my fellow soldiers. And I've seen that we are so easily turned into mere matter. We so easily are animals. And ultimately in some ways the rats win in some ways the rats are better off than we are. That's the kind of epiphany that Scott Poole is trying to emphasize in his book. And it's the kind of thing that we see in Nosferatu, where the human beings are then the prey of the vampire who travels with these rats in the coffins that are carrying the soil, the cursed soil from the Black Death, bringing a new plague out of the soil of the old one. Scott Poole thinks that Waxworks is super important, but I was not impressed. But, you know, he's connecting it to this whole thesis that I've basically outlined in the past, you know, 20 minutes or so. So you get the sense of why he would care about it. And he has this whole thing where he talks about dolls and stuff like that. Well, you get it. Dolls are creepy. Okay. Waxworks is so stupid. How stupid is it? Literally, the last six minutes is when it gets scary. It's like... Unevenly spaced. I know. It's like, man, did you do a second draft of that script? <laughs> it's like me writing. Wait, 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 wait. But did you know that he wrote the screenplay in three days? So not no a lot shit. of shock there. Not a lot of revision. And it makes sense because this movie belongs in the trash. He did actually, you know, go on to make a number of other, I suppose, 
better paced movies. And I think that people look to this as like an early sense of like what he was going for, what his obsessions were. But do go on, Anna. How bad is it? There was so many things that I disliked about this movie. I probably could talk about it for a long time. Disclaimer, though, I watched the 1988 version. So you might see parallels, you might not, but I'm going to do the rant anyway. I hated the loose and explanatory plot. I hated the fuzzy 80s film. Wait, the fuzzy 80s film, that's clearly the wrong movie. (laughs) I know. I hated the romance. I hated the climax fight scene. I hated the forced catchphrases. I hated the whole bit with Marquis de Sade. The bit with Marquis de Sade is not in the 1924 movie. He's in it in a big way in the 88 version. Okay. Did they at least have Ivan the Terrible? No. Did you watch the 1924 movie at all? No. Wait, what? No, not No. No. This no! is literally called the Monstrous Twenty. No, this is terrible, Anna. I think we get out of this is that somehow this 1924 movie ended up being important in people's minds, important enough that people wanted to make different versions of the concept. And ultimately, by the time you get to the 80s, when like horror is a big, big thing, you have people trying to extend the concept and like do it in a way that Paul Lenny doesn't actually execute. So in the original version, you think that you're going to get a full-on anthology you think that you're going to get at least four characters, at least four plot lines, a few different stories. You get two and a half, maybe two Not and a quarter, a half. Two, and two and a quarter, quarter. at best. Quarter. It's really bad execution. I could understand why somebody would come around in the 80s and be like, no, do this one for real. No, I got no. three days to write this motherfucker. And then <laughs> yeah, like, we won't have to keep true to the original thing. We'll put some Marquis de Sade in there. That sounds like some scary shit. Put some half-naked whipping well, in there. <laughs> again, of course. Hickok sucks as a writer, and his version belongs in the garbage. So please don't watch it. It's a waste of your time. I guess we could say that all ultimately comes from here, though. I mean, the whole point of Poole's monograph, and I know that I'm probably obsessing over it, the whole point is that this is the time period in which all of our concepts of what horror film is come from. And so Lenny lays down something here that, yeah, is going to echo through even till the 80s. When I was watching the movie, I was like, okay, this first dude from Baghdad, he's getting a lot of time. Okay, when is he going to end? Because I know there's like two other dudes. When are they going to get their equal time slots, as you would expect? I feel like they had not figured out pacing in this era of film at all. There are certain portions of movies that we think should last much longer that don't, and other portions that... Why does anybody care about either of those first two stories for as long as he gives them screen time for? At least people know Ivan a little bit more. The more known they get, the less time they receive. Kind of. I'm not assuming that the Caliph of Baghdad is based on any actual person anyway. What I see happening in this movie is it's supposed to be an anthology of horrific true tales. And then at some point it takes a left turn into Orientalism and never comes back. And so we get the Caliph of Baghdad, we get Ivan the Terrible, and then it's like, oh shit, did you think I was going to talk about those other guys? (laughs) Because I don't have any time left right now. It's almost morning. I told Rachel, thank God for double speed. I mean, I understand it. The pacing in these silent movies is really irksome to a 21st century mindset. Well, I feel horrible for doing it, but as I'm watching the movie, like I so badly just want to like pull out my phone and start, I don't know, reading Twitter or some shit. 
I'm terrible. I feel like a terrible, terrible person. And I'm like, can you not sit and watch a fucking movie? And we're going to watch the dude walk the whole way across the room. And then we're going to have to wait for him to say something. And then it's going to show the inner title. And then I'm going to read the inner title. And I can read the inner title like twice as fast as like, maybe, I don't know, maybe people were like only sending yeah. glitter and they're like sounding out the words. I don't fucking know. As I was watching it at double speed, I'm like, oh, this is like a regular paced movie. Exactly. By our standards, yeah. Is my attention span that short because it's been hacked by the age of instant gratification? That's sad. It is. It is. And mine is too, and and ours all are. I was actually going to say the same thing. I have terrible ADD, and I always have. I know it's gotten worse. I know that like having a smartphone is worse for me. I know that it's bad, but whatever, that's our world now, I guess, you know? And it got me thinking like things are going really fast in our world and we usually don't slow down. Even now, like some of our most popular movies, like the blockbusters are all like action packed adventure movies. And they're super fucking long and I fucking hate them. You know, I loved 1917. But toward the end of that movie, the first time I saw it, I was like, come on, is this over yet? Come on. (laughs) Maybe my brain's just like fucking wrecked. And a lot of this is you have to take into account set and setting, you know, as the trippers would say. Every time you watch a movie, it's going to be a completely different movie. And so I've seen it several other times since then. And I think that a couple of those, I've hit the sweet spot when I was like right in sync with the pace of what it was going to do. And I felt like I was ready to accept that for what it was. We're not accustomed, perhaps, to take in these movies as they were. And that's fair enough to admit. Have either of you been to like a waxworks or a, or a wax museum or whatever people are calling it? No, but I keep up with Madame Toussaint's. Okay. I haven't been, but I know of that one. We do have a local history museum here, and we have a Lincoln room, and we have an Abe Lincoln wax statue, but I don't think that really counts. I think that, yeah, if it doesn't really count, it's because it's not supposed to be scary, is it? No. Poole goes into the history of the Wax Museum a little bit, and Madame Tussauds specifically. And some of that's actually connected up with the French Revolution. And so the origins of the concept of terror and, you know, things like you're executing these royal figures and aristocrats and then you make wax figures to represent them in the museum but it's like kind of a spooky thing because it always is going to evoke the gore and violence then even 200 years later well 100 and change later during the first world war you're seeing this being then translated into things like the grand guignol which i have never quite understood But you see filtering back through European cinema and then particularly into those really extreme mid-century and late 20th century Italian horror films that I've sort of made reference to in the past and that end up influencing 80s slasher horror and beyond. And in the Grand Guignol, there's a lot of this dissection of corpses and pulling out of entrails and it's, if I'm to understand it correctly, a sort of staged act that involves the dismemberment of a mock corpse it is a kind of weird waxwork magician type act. And they get gorier, apparently, during and after the First World War. 
So Scott Poole's talking about them as a way of processing the horrors of the war, of dismemberment, of dead bodies. And again, getting back to this concept of the human body as an empty husk that ultimately, if you say, well, well, what is inside of a human being? Once upon a time, we would say a soul. And then eventually we say, well, I've seen it before. It's just a bunch of fucking blood and guts, you know? <laughs> and that, that sort of encapsulates the modern epiphany, the modern mindset. This is then wrapped up with the concept of the waxwork, where we see the human being represented as a mere figure that we then project our stories, our feelings onto, and imagine things from. So we get in the waxworks then, the writer writing the stories of these people and just merely imagining them, imagining the twisted souls beneath. Poole also gets into sort of the history of the carnival. You see in that waxworks that, of course, it takes place in a carnival. You know, you wouldn't have to go to Poole for this. It's, I guess, kind of obvious. And it's the kind of thing that in one of his more flippant works, Paul Fussell referred to this process as prol drift. Once Paul Fussell, like, did his serious academic work, he wrote, like, three or five books that were just him ripping on pop culture really hard. It was definitely like, now I can write whatever I want to, and fuck all y'all. He wrote a book called Class that's basically just him explaining the American class system in pretty brutal ways. It's not based on any research other than, like, I look around and I see what I see. And he calls this Pearl Drift this sort of process where things that are at one point sort of upper-class luxury things eventually become middle-class things, and things that were once middle-class things eventually become working-class things. And actually, everybody lower down on the ladder thinks that they're being clever and hip and moving up in the world, but like the actual clever, hip, wealthier, and more stable people know that that's not cool anymore and they've moved on to the next fucking thing. It's really obvious in like fashion and stuff like that, but it's also obvious in leisure. Well, originally people didn't really go on vacations to the beach, but once people started going on vacations to the beach, it was originally a very leisure class, upper class thing. I have time to go to a vacation. I can travel to this thing. And eventually like going to the beach becomes something that everybody can do. In the 19th century, the carnival and even the sideshow are actually very much defined as a middle-class thing by people like P.T. Barnum who want to make them at least look like they're quasi-scientific. Now, that's not to say they actually are, but they're like at least pretending this is something that like, you're not just in here because you're a sick motherfucker in for the shits and giggles. You actually are really curious about the perplexities of human anatomy and the confounding animals from all over the world that we've brought to you here. So the origins of the carnival and the sideshow are very middle class insofar as you had money to go a place and do a thing, right? <laughs> insofar as like you weren't literally just shoveling food in your mouth and like working another day so you didn't starve to death. But eventually things get to where 
even the working class can have enough disposable income to be able to afford these kinds of basic leisure activities. And by that, we're thinking roughly turn of the century, go into the Penny Arcade, go into, yeah, the carnival, the sideshow, and then eventually, right, go into the movies, right? Penny Arcade movies, originally actually not so different because before you have movies on big screen, even you have movies on like a weird binocular bit thing you'd look through. So Poole's pointing out that, you know how carnivals are kind of like automatically creepy and weird? That originates basically in this time period when it becomes a more downscale entertainment, it becomes more increasingly associated with the criminal underclass. And then you get middle class people talking about carnies traveling from town to town and doing nefarious shit. And then you have the notion that like, well, if you wander through there, something bad might happen and it's kind of creepy and spooky. And that's what Paul Lenny's playing off here with this whole introduction where it takes place in the carnival. And you have these beautiful, very, very much Weimar cinema style, multiple exposure things where you see the Ferris wheel superimposed over the other various attractions of the carnival. And I mean, think about this dude. I mean, this is a dude who's like, I need a buck. I can write a story. I'm going to go in here. You go talk to the sketchy dude, sits his daughter down by you. Write me four stories, motherfucker. <laughs> what weird it's sketchy like shit is this just like anthony hickox like oh i think i can write a screenplay uh-huh. yeah i mean i guess so that, that is their world it's harder than you think certainly not in three days so many movies were written on a short schedule in all eras and good ones and bad ones i'm not saying that he couldn't write a good screenplay in a short amount of time i guess it's just it takes my writing a long time to be good that's true for most people The long and short of it is that the way that these Weimar films were interpreted by people who are running in some of those same circles as Horkheimer and Adorno after the Second World War ended up building the way that we think of genre studies even today. Even if we disagree with some of their points, even if we've been arguing about that shit ever since then, it sort of built the whole concept because people are grappling with the notion of what does it mean to be a culture on its way towards fascism? And can you see that in the films they make? Because there's something about Waxworks that not only reaches back to the First World War, but also reaches forward to the Nazi period. And I think the pool, to my mind, is more useful in that he's doing the obvious thing that took too fucking long to do, which is just to say, well, they're reacting to the First World War. That seems like the obvious and necessary thing to do. But the thing is that the whole field was built on people writing in the 40s and being like, well, how did we become Nazis? That was a terrible thing. And we must see the clues in the movies leading up to it. It's this weird cart before the horse that, yeah, you might have some interesting stuff there, but it's also, you tried really hard to say the clever thing when maybe you should have started with the obvious thing. listening to Professor Frank Fucile and research assistants Anna Wendorf and Rachel Homily. I'm sound editor Madeline McCabe. The Pointless Century is part of the Modernist Centennial Media Outreach Project, funded in part by the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire Office of Research and Sponsored Programs.
The music in today's episode is Vile by the Melvins on their album Ozma and Der Golem by Fantomas on their album The Director's Cut. Remember to troll us on Twitter at Pointless Scent and follow us on Instagram at The Pointless Century. We're also selling the Pointless Century t-shirts now, so if you're interested in supporting your favorite anti-fascist cultural studies podcast, click the link in the description below for our new merch. We'll see you in a couple weeks for the Monstrous 20s Part 2.